This is East Lansing Insider, brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. In this show, we break down all of the news and happenings in the East Lansing community. And now, today's East Lansing Insider. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the East Lansing Insider podcast, brought to you by EastLansingInfo.News in cooperation with 89 Impact Radio. I'm Alice Drager. I'm the executive director and publisher of East Lansing Info and also a government reporter for Eli. And I have with me today Andrew Graham, who's our lead government reporter, and also Lisa Babcock, who is a member of the East Lansing City Council. Lisa was elected in 2019 and still stays on city council in spite of much of the council having disappeared since she was named in office. Jesse Gregg, who's now mayor, was named uh, was elected in the same round as Lisa Babcock in terms of elections. So they are the two remaining people who were elected to the city council. And there's a race coming up. We'll be talking about that. We'll be asking Lisa about other kinds of questions like uh, what's happening with the city manager's review, what's going on with the city attorneys, talking about transparency. And then at the end of the program, we'll be talking with managing editor Emily Elliott about uh, kind of a new feature that we're doing, which is what's the weird thing we had to explore this week as Eli reporters. And this one will be about Quality Dairy's French onion dip. So stay tuned for that. So, Andrew, I'll let you jump off and start asking our questions of Lisa. So back away from French onion dip to city council elections. But Lisa, Can we, we talk about French onion dip. I have very strong opinions about Quality uh, Dairy French onion dip, having grown up in the area. As apparently to, does everyone, which is why we had to research I, it. I am Absolutely. unfortunately being paid to talk about city council elections today and not a French onion dip, but... <laughs> Another time. So we asked Jesse two weeks ago, I believe, or I did about her choices for who she was endorsing or sort of backing in the city council elections. So we want to pose the same question to you. So who are you endorsing in two year race and the four year race? Well, interestingly, no one's asked me for an outright endorsement yet. And I don't know if I should be if if my feelings should be hurt or if I should be politically afraid or if I've just been tone deaf. I have a Dan Bowman sign in my front yard, and that's there in part because of my thoughts and also because of the much better half. Um, I am absolutely supporting Ron Bacon in the two-year race, and curiously, the much better half asked for the yard sign there. A little flashback to 2019, I could barely get my own yard sign uh, in my lawn because the much better half doesn't do lawn signs. He's, He's come a long way as we've been through city council. I can see the four-year race playing out in a couple of ways that would be very good for the city, uh, very productive years on the city council. So that for me is going to be the gut-wrencher race because I can't get it down to just two or haven't yet. However, it's probably worth noting that while we've been thinking about this and not a lot else since late July, Normal people, I think, aren't yet aware that there's an election in November. Even in a community as engaged and committed as East Lansing, I just don't think it's registered yet. Okay, so just to remind folks, uh, the two-year race, there's one seat open. In the four-year race, Lisa's referring to the fact that there are two seats open and there's five candidates for that. So if you want to learn more about that, just a reminder, East Lansing Info does nonpartisan election reporting. So if you go to eastlansinginfo.news and you click on the election tab at the top, that will take you to our election reporting and you can read all about those candidates. And I swear I've not been given any French onion dip or the other absolute favorite there, peppermint stick ice cream from Quality Dairy, to say this. But as a former news reporter, as a community member, 
um, as a candidate, former candidate and now city council member, it's unparalleled reporting at East Lansing Info. And uh, you're just buttering us up. We're going to move. I'm to the next not. Question. I know you're going <laughs> to slap me with the tough questions, but I will say, and Alice, you remember this, um, a large Gannett owned publication in the neighboring city ran not once, but twice stories in the election, uh, my election that were patently false and nothing we could do would get them to pull it down on the day of the election or, you know, let alone correct it. So I, I will say there are times, especially in Wednesday mornings where the phone rings and I raise one eyebrow and think, oh, here we go. But that's what that's what publications, that's what newspapers do in a democracy. They make people crazy. And Alice, you're really good at that. <laughs> and I commend I, you for it. There's, it's important. It's I important was, to I make was. people rethink what their positions are or make people expand on their positions in front of the public or have developers refer to us as dangerous activists speaking of which so lisa you have been willing to be a minority oppositional vote on various issues that have been before east lansing city council and i mean one example of that is what happened with the center city district project and developer mark bell who ended up calling me a dangerous activist for bringing (laughs) forward some really intense bond reporting. <laughs> Only in East Lansing would you be called an activist for doing bond reporting. Again, but- though, the public service element of <laughs> a, a true a true investigative paper, which you know we heard nothing of the sort from a large entity across town. Well, you've also been a minority vote in various other things, and you've also stood out in some ways as being particularly challenging of the police department. Um, we did Andrew did some really outstanding reporting on an issue of a complaint that you brought forward regarding a case of alleged sexual assault at the Deer Path Apartments and um, problematic situations that happened at our police department. Um, You kind of got hung out there. So we were hoping, Andrew and I were hoping you would talk a little bit about your philosophy as about how you act as a council member, because you do read a little differently when we report in that way. Well, in our unsavory political advisors for 600, Alex, I give you Elliot Spitzer, who did say govern like you've got one term. And he did, but not in the way I intend to. Um, Former governor of New York. His predecessor did some similar activities. So many former governors of New York these days. Actually, you know, now that (laughs) I sense a trend. So govern like you've got one term. Think about what you want to do and do it. Don't don't. I'm not saying don't negotiate because. The city council should be a place of negotiation, a place of listening, a place of adaptation. But don't do it because you want a political score for the next election. Don't set something up so you can check a box politically. Govern like you've got one term. Put it out there and work for it. Um, I've always believed that if you do policy, the politics will follow. Now, we can think of a lot of historical examples there that wasn't the case, George McGovern, but, um, but it's still worth governing that way. I never set out to be a minority vote on any of these things, and I never set out exactly to be a police reformer. If you ask people who knew me, who've known me for years, they would not put me in that category. I think the important thing about that policing story was, again, the facts didn't add up. And it's not being adverse to the police department to point out 
a glaring and egregious error that could have put someone, a 24-year-old behind bars for life, that's not anti-policing. Holding holding up scrutiny of that, claiming that questioning that is anti-policing is in fact anti-policing because in that breath, you're telling me that that's how policing works and I know it isn't. As a public defender, I always really liked East Lansing Police Department. I liked LPD because I thought they were better than some others. It's hard to paint a whole department with one brush. And uh, as I heard on NPR the other day, someone's life should not be reduced to the worst thing they've ever done, but it warrants scrutiny. And I think nationally, internationally, in many communities, there's this idea that um, the police are are under siege and they have to protect their own. Actually, if I could cut in on that. um, Sure. I, will, I was curious about, this was making me think about some of the changes that Ingham County Prosecutor Carol Seaman has recently announced and is enacting. Uh, the two coming to mind are that they're not going to be pursuing criminal charges coming from traffic stops, i.e. if you know you get pulled over for your headlight being out uh, or something and they see right. some drugs in the backseat, you get a notice for your headlight being out and that's the end of that. And then the other one was not uh, bringing the the state felony firearm charge, which basically could allow you to effectively add another felony to a crime if a firearm was on their person or in their possession, even if it wasn't involved in the crime. And there's been a lot of vocal reaction from police and both from, I remember getting a subsequent press release from the prosecutor, Carol Seaman herself, explaining the firearm one a day after it had been announced, which is not usual. So I'm curious your perspective on those changes that might actually have a very, very direct impact. I have immense respect for Carol Seaman and um, really the fact that she's, as a prosecutor, willing to do things that don't bear the imprimatur of police support is really unusual among prosecution. Um, Often the police direct or or guide prosecutorial decisions. So I I respect her for that. I am struggling with the gun decision. So when you bring a felony firearm charge, it's a two-year flat, meaning that that, you do that, if convicted, you do that two years in addition to anything else. It doesn't get blended into other sentences. Um, Tacked on, yeah. Exactly. So, but but I, I see... Gun problems, particularly in Lansing, um, we've, we've heard about gun problems in East Lansing this summer, and I am struggling with that. I would actually like to see her second statement because I, I could probably learn something from that. I, I represented a young man who got the two-year flat. He had a gun, and the reason he had the gun was because people around him in his literal neighborhood, had guns, and he felt he needed one to be safe. And it was a traffic stop that yielded the unregistered gun in the car. And and so we get a cat and mouse problem or a circular problem with the guns. Right. Maybe it's because of my background in law. Maybe it's because I said I have square corners. You know, you, you see a problem, you find a solution. I have always thought of prosecuting the gun charges as a way to limit the gun use and the gun carrying. However, 
I'm certainly interested in Carol Seaman's approach and um, I respect her for putting something out there. We, we do know that it seems to dis- disproportionately affect African-American men. And I'm sure that's part of her thinking. Yeah. And that's the part she put of that in her, her second statement or the, the original one, I think explained that that was part of the yeah, reason. And that's, it. and that's, that troubles me about the two year flat. So there's always room for nuance in these things. Um, what you think is going to solve a problem doesn't necessarily solve it on the first try or doesn't solve it for everyone. And that's the hard thing about governing. You're doing the best you can under the circumstances you have and with the information well, you have. Speaking of doing the best you can and the circumstances you have and nuance, <laughs> and you related, it's related to, you brought up the, the some of the, the gun problems downtown this summer. Um, the non-continuance or the, the decision not to proceed for now with the Albert Alfresco um, Eli did a story about it. Um, city council, basically it came and passed the street closure ended on August 15th and the Albert Alfresco, which is a closed off portion of Albert street between MAC and Abbott, which had some nice tables, outdoor furniture, occasionally some umbrellas, sunblocking stuff. Um, ostensibly a quite popular thing, but there was some actually complex reasoning as to why it's not being continued for now, at least. And I, I'm curious to hear a little more of your perspective about the problems downtown that maybe you were as a council or you personally as a council member were hearing about or, or dealing with on that end of things. And maybe not just all the, my kids and I love it. And it's a great place well, to get a coffee. I am the world's most boring person. So when I would be downtown at El Fresco is, I assure you, when nothing of real interest would be going not on. I saw families playing being beanbag and that sort of thing. I don't think that's what people are talking about largely. Um, it was really well used, utilized, eh, well used, utilized is not a word, uh, well used during the art festival. And you saw people with their kids using, you saw grandparents using it, which is a very different feeling than the concrete tables last year. So I think this is a, a huge step up and I think it was popular for all the right reasons. However, a couple concerns is that the government that pro- project that giveth taketh away. And so for the 7-Eleven and for some non-resident, excuse me, non-restaurant businesses, they felt that A, they weren't really consulted and B, that it was not beneficial to them and C, that council acted, the council acted without consulting them or without really listening to them. And I want to be mindful of that because we need to be sure that all parties are being heard. And if you, if one of the assets of your business is that people can whip in and park and pop in and get a pop or a bag of chips or whatever one buys, everything one buys at 7-Eleven, if they can't access you, that really puts a dent in it, right? Um, but a big part of that issue that people are bringing up too, including the police, it was not just sort of the equity with business issue, but rather that when the bars were closing at two o'clock in the morning, there was violence and, uh, for example, gunshots. And that right. folks were concerned about that. So could you talk a little bit about that? What you're thinking in terms of that line the police are required to sort of tow that goes between not over-policing, but also not allowing that kind of behavior to happen? There is no easy answer to that, because when we first did uh, the the 2020 version of Concrete Picnic Tables downtown, 
the council explicitly told the police department they didn't want them over policing it or really policing it at all unless there was an incident. We we told the police we didn't want them walking up and say IDing people randomly, that we would not find that acceptable. And because the council sets the policy and the law and the police department enforces it, that's what they did. So with this year, um, again, it's been the policy of the city that we do not want people just randomly having their bags checked. However, we also have a community and a nation that is increasingly gun-loving. I heard from some of the bar owners that they were unhappily surprised to learn that the people with the guns were leaving their establishments and they have never had any kind of gun check process. You never have to check your, well, okay, it's been since the 80s, but I'm told that even recently, no one checks your bag as you walk into any of these establishments. We don't think about it. We don't think about it because frankly, we haven't had to. So now we're back circling back to guns, the two-year flat, and what do we do in many ways of an increasingly violent or at least increasingly brandishing society? I don't have a good answer for that. I think that we need to really consider that before we open up El Fresco again or, or anything like it. So just to remind folks at eastlansinginfo.news, you can use our search button to search our reporting on these things. And we have done a lot of reporting on it. Actually, a lot of that's been done by Andrew and it's great reporting, um, but also Heather Brothers and Emily Joan Elliott and myself um, and other folks. So if you go there, you can read about policing. And we are actually going to be bringing an update about the policing issues, including Siemens new statements and this question of what's going on with towing that line between over-policing and under-policing and bringing that forward. But Lisa, we wanted to move on a bit. So as you know, the city council hires and fires two people in the city. You don't deal with most of the staff. And those people are the city manager and the city attorney. And both of those positions have um, been controversial, of course, because it is something that's subject to the will of the elected body. So we were hoping you'd talk a little bit about this. The city manager, you were in charge of guiding through the contract renewal that happened last year um, out of out of cycle, but you did it because or the council decided to do it because there was so much turmoil in the city. What can we expect in terms of when there's going to be an evaluation of George Lahanis by the current council? What do you think that's going to look like? How are you feeling about that contract renewal? Talk with us about that. Well, that's squarely on my shoulders. Uh, Councilmember Bacon and I need to get an evaluation pulled together and and get it done. Uh, we wanted to create something that would stand for a longer period of time than just one evaluation of the current city manager. And yeah, we, because in the past there has not really been a clear evaluation no, system. No, there has not been, and so I think there should be. And so the question is then how. How large should it be? Should we create something that's a multi-year thing that then, you know, like a council evaluation on, say, odd numbered years and a broader evaluation, maybe a 360 review, maybe a community input on the even numbered years. And we haven't reached that conclusion yet. I will say um, after the departure of two city council members in one night, in the middle of a meeting, no less. Ruth Byron, Mark Meadows, yep. Yeah, we, we had to reach for stability. Um, at that point, as of July 14 last year, in a matter of months, we had a police chief leave under pressure. We had 
changed a city attorney from a firm that had represented the city since the Kennedy administration. And I will still argue that there was there were several good reasons for change. We lost two city council members who left mid-meeting with no prior warning. And well, I'll put an asterisk there because that's what lawyers do. I'll come back to it. And then the city manager told us that um, he wanted a four-year contract and we knew he was interviewing in Mankato, Minnesota. So it looked likely that he could actually leave. We needed stability. We needed to, to telegraph stability to the city staff, to the city resident um, for financial reasons. And also it's really hard to hire a good police chief um, seat new council members, get a new city manager when you're down five crucial positions. It's definitely a lot. It's a lot. And so I agreed to the four-year contract. I, when asked, and I'm being asked, I will say honestly, that was probably my, uh, certainly my biggest mistake on council. Um, I know there were the votes there for a four-year contract. I have my regrets about just not doing enough Human resources is not my background. By any stretch of the imagination, I'm usually running from human resources in order to be able to do my job. And um, we have this contract. Uh, it was enthusiastically supported by some members of the council, or at least people who are members of the council at that time. That is something that I will learn from and certainly reflect on going forward with other city contracts and probably during a lot of major decision making in my career. Speaking of other city contracts, yes, council, council recently put out an RFP um, to seek new city attorneys, or attorneys potentially, um, after about 11 months with the Foster Swift firm. Obviously, we were just discussing the firing of the Yaden McGinty firm and Tom Yaden as city attorney. And you speak about, obviously, the desire for stability so what's, I mean, I, I hesitate to use the word soured, but what other than the publicly discussed cost measures were maybe at play with deciding to put that out to bid? Well, costs are a huge factor. And remember, when we signed this contract, we signed it last year as a one-year contract with the option to renew because for the first time in, I believe, the city charter's history, we were moving away from one firm. And there were many, many good reasons to make that decision, but we were sort of getting our footing. We also, I personally had heard from law firms that weren't sure whether East Lansing really meant it as far as putting out an RFP last year, and they were skittish about getting involved because there had been two prior RFPs in very recent years, which were frankly just used to increase the pay of the incumbent firm. So something we had to consider and something I considered before moving on changing the city attorney was would anyone put in for an RFP with that, um, with the background? And there were some very unhappy people. And some of them said that, well, we're going to see what you do over the next year. It was largely economic decisions. We also there are many good reasons, governance reasons, to split the city's attorney role for prosecution from the civil and municipal representation. Most of the firms that do civil and municipal representation really don't do criminal prosecution, or they might do it sort of as a favor on the side. We managed to run two full dockets with criminal prosecution, 
And that was really off-putting. Uh, Foster Swift stepped up, and I will say we got a an exceptional prosecutor in that he is really aligned with this council's view of prosecution, which is we don't uh, we don't have you plead guilty to everything, pay us, and then the charges go away. So he may put in. I would hope I would hope that Foster Swift would consider an RFP for both of those roles, which will now be separated. We stand to gain more. RFPs on the civil and municipal side without the prosecution tied to it. Okay. And whatever happens there, we will keep covering it. If you want to keep following what's happening in East Lansing News, do go to eastlansinginfo.news. And if you want to sign up for our emailers that send you alerts every time we've got a new item, it's eastlansinginfo.news slash mailers. Those are free. And we thank Councilmember Lisa Babcock for joining us today. And I also thank our reporter, city government reporter, Andrew Graham, for joining us today on this podcast. Thanks and stay tuned. So now let's talk about quality dairy. Uh, We've been covering a lot of heavy news at East Lansing Info lately. And Emily asked me if she could respond to a reader question that was a little bit different. Tell us about it, Emily. Yes. On our Ask Eli submission form, we received a question from a reader saying that Quality Dairy had never switched the recipe for its French onion dip and other products, but they had outsourced it to another, um, I believe, Michigan-based family-owned company to produce it. And even though the recipe has remained the same, everyone feels that it tastes different. Maybe not everyone, but a lot of people. (laughs) Yes, a lot of people. I did see some debates on Facebook, a few people saying it tastes the same. Others have switched the dip completely that they eat now. Um, So we did call corporate headquarters for Quality Dairy in Lansing, and they were emphatic that the recipe was still the same. But based on this reader's question and other debates I had seen on social media, it felt like too many people thought it was different. Um, so I wrote to MSU Extension because they are their goal, their mission is community outreach and they focus on agriculture to see if I use different produce or dairy products or if I use um, different machinery, could that affect the taste? And it turns out it could. I reached out to a food scientist. I reached out to a historian who studies food and I reached out to a psychologist and the psychologist what broke down how taste works, that we have innate taste, which is part of our physiology, but then we have learned taste, which could be shaped about by your culture, um, foods you ate growing up, but also things like the packaging of what you, your food comes in, were all different factors that could influence taste. And the historian also pointed out that say everything is done exactly the same way, the same products, same production, Obviously, it wouldn't be the same machinery, but we'll say it's the same exact type or model. The transition time of bringing it from further away to Lansing could also um, affect the taste. So we learned a lot in this kind of cool little report responding to a reader question. We respond to lots of reader questions at East Lansing Info, and you can reach us by going to our website, eastlansinginfo.news, and clicking on the contact link. You're welcome to submit an Ask Eli question. We focus really on East Lansing issues, um, but we're willing to take sort of things of concern to the East Lansing area populace. So thanks so much, Emily. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Alice. 
East Lansing Insider is brought to you by ELI on Impact 89 FM. We are on the web at eastlansinginfo.news and impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening.